This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Old Gold What Now? I'm Naomi Smith. Let's meet this week's panel, Minnie Rahman, taking a sabbatical from her sabbatical, currently living her <laughs> best eat, pray, love life, to join us on the show. It's Minnie Rahman. Hi. Minnie, your favourite government department, the Home Office, announced this week that it is going to abandon plans, apparently, to use border force boats to intercept channel crossings. Is this a great victory for campaigners or will Priti Patel try and get this plan through in some other way? Yeah, I mean, it is a it is a massive win that we were able to get them to commit to not following through on this ridiculous plan. Um, but you can't always predict how committed Patel is to being a massive villain. So, you know, I would say that this is <laughs> this is one of the, those plans that made no legal or logical sense. It would literally <laughs> yep. result in Home Office or Border Patrol or the Navy breaking international law and maybe watching people drown or even having their own vehicles be responsible for people's death um so you know no government body agreed the navy opposed it border force opposed it the french would never agree to it so even if she tried to put it through again i don't think it would materialize it's ridiculous and i can't believe they ever suggested it in the first place well that is a relief and bloody well done to you and others that campaigned so forcefully on it uh, on a slightly different note uh, today as we record there has been a breaking story alleging that a front-bench Conservative MP has been hard at work uh, <laughs> watching porn on their phone in the House of Commons. Um, now, a few years ago, Damien Green was, was sacked for uh, having visited porn sites uh, while at work as an MP. Uh, why, why aren't politicians as repressed about this stuff as, as most people? I honestly don't understand it. I've got no logical explanation for why one would do this. I especially don't understand this story today because why would you watch porn during a committee hearing or in the chamber, which are both <laughs> live streamed and there's there's cameras in there, there's microphones in there, there's always millions of other people. I, I, I haven't got a logical explanation for why they would do this. I'm I almost don't believe it because it's so ridiculous that someone did it, but fine. Well, apparently they did and it's being corroborated <laughs> and now investigated by the whips. And there's a joke in there. Uh, <laughs> find Alexandre is a commentator and expert strapazzada chef. Hello, Alex. Hello. This uh, porn story emerged on the same day that the High Court ruled um, that discharging patients into care homes uh, at the height of the, the first wave of the pandemic was unlawful. Uh, we've known for a long time that the whole protective ring mantra was total nonsense. Who's on the hook for this? So um, it's important to examine whether the ruling actually says. So to quote from it, 
The common law claim succeeds against the Secretary of State and Public Health England in respect of both the March discharge policy and April admissions guidance documents. To this extent, the policy set out in each document was irrational. This was based on the court's finding that, and I quote again, those drafting the policy simply failed to take into account the highly relevant consideration of the risk to vulnerable and elderly residents from asymptomatic transmission. That's the ruling. Mm. Hancock issued a statement claiming this decision comprehensively clears ministers of any wrongdoing. <laughs> Johnson, during PMQs, was asked about this by, by Daisy Cooper, a Lib Dem MP, and responded by reminding the House that the government at that point knew nothing about asymptomatic transmission. Also, the sky is green, El Dorado was a huge success, and syphilis <laughs> is good for you. I mean, I, I genuinely don't know what, what to make of this reaction. When is it, anyone going to face consequences? They'll probably kick it to the public inquiry, which Johnson promised would start in the spring of 2022 at the latest. It's the end of April now. Um, and, and they probably will do their favourite thing of going into it would be wrong of me to preempt the findings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that's what's going to happen. But obviously this stuff will be evidence for the inquiry. You know, this is a legal yeah. ruling saying this stuff happened, you got it wrong. I think it feeds into a more general narrative that's beginning to push back against this idea that they got the big calls right, you know. You add this to Johnson claiming the days of tank wars on the European landmass are over, to uh, Johnson claiming that uh, uh, fears of inflation were misplaced and he saw a period of growth. And it begins to look like actually they got all the big calls very, very wrong. Well, the uh, French electorate got a call right because <laughs> Marine Le Pen conceded the French election at the weekend. But that doesn't mean Macron is totally in the clear, does it? You know, low turnout, four in ten, did mm. go for Le Pen, and he can't run again next time. What's the outcome? What's the projection, Alex, for, for the, you know, the next presidential election? I mean, a lot is conditional on what happens in the legislative elections in June. If Anne Marsh wins that, then Macron has had a stunning vote of approval. If he ends up with a coalition government with Melanchon as prime minister, you know, all these things are possible. That would be very, very interesting. Um, on the subject of the inexorable rise of Le Pen, I'm, I'm afraid I don't buy it. There is no rule that trends are monodirectional. Her popularity goes up and it goes down. The one more push strategy doesn't always work, or Kinnock would have been prime minister. Um, Le Pen herself has said she won't stand again, a fact that's largely ignored by the press in this country. She faces big challenges from within her own party and from Zamora on her right. And five years is just a very long time, especially in the current climate. I mean, I, I just think Le Pen is just as likely to be in prison or reveal herself to be a Sasha Baron Cohen character <laughs> or win the French version of Dancing on Ice or probably all three. Uh, 
I, I just don't understand how the press in this country is making very confident predictions about what will happen in the next presidential election in five years' time between a candidate that says they won't run and a candidate that we don't know yet. <laughs> Our guest this week has written and edited more than 40 books, including six biographies of prime ministers. His latest, The Impossible Office, question mark, explores the history of the longest-lasting democratic office in the world. On top of all that, he was married earlier this month. Anthony Selden, welcome to the podcast and big congratulations. Well, thank you very much indeed. I hadn't expected you to say that, but thank you. (laughs) Apparently on a Tuesday morning, uh, Boris Johnson got his cabinet together to discuss ways to fix the cost of living crisis. The catch is that they could only suggest non-fiscal measures. It doesn't exactly scream government of all the talents, does it? What, What would you be advising him right now if he would listen? Well, he won't and he hasn't. And study history. Uh, We have (laughs) history-like prime ministers who think that they can ignore uh, everything that's gone before and just make it up themselves because, I suppose there's an assumption there that everybody else from any other party, but particularly their own party, was a complete idiot, didn't know how to do it. But we do, and they all become unstuck, and they all become unstuck for the same reasons. They don't appoint the best people to cabinet. They appoint their friends in uh, number 10. They don't have any uh, proper planning. I mean, mistakes that anyone running a small business would uh, not be able to afford to make. The result is that every prime minister since the birth of uh, democracy in Britain in 1918 or 1928, if you're purist, has been forced out of office. This week on the show, local elections loom and there could only be eight letters of no confidence remaining before the magic number is reached against Boris Johnson. We'll be talking to Anthony about the factors that lead to a prime minister's demise and how close Johnson could be to his. And we react to Elon Musk's multi-billion dollar takeover of Twitter. Plus, in the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers, we prepare the popcorn and maybe the sick bags too as we tune (laughs) into News UK's new talk TV station. But first, a quick message from Alex. Woodstock, Live Aid. Glastonbury. Our next live show won't be like any of those because I'm the only one who can sing. But we'll still be bringing the house down at the Old Market Theatre in Hove on Wednesday the 8th of June. I'll be there with Dorian, Roz and Ian for a political jamboree by the seaside. Tickets are on sale now and patrons have a special discount for all live shows. We'll see you there. First this week, leaflets are hitting doormats as the country gears up for the local elections on May the 5th. The Met Police are delaying updates on their partygate investigations until after the elections. But even Brexit headbanger Steve Baker is warning that it's the main issue coming up on the doorstep. Alex, according to the lobby, the lobby journalists, Johnson hasn't received a questionnaire for the Garden Party on May the 20th, 2020, even though other people have already been fined for it. What's the latest? So um, 
Adam Wagner, who is a barrister who has, in the last couple of years, become a sort of specialist on the COVID uh, restrictions. So he reckons it's because there was a strange lacuna in the law for about a week when it was okay to attend parties in your own garden, as weird as that sounds. Um, There are other theories floating around. My own is that the Met may be finding people in tears of severity, which means that they will do all the guests in those things and then go up to the instigators, organizers, and inviters, which is a sort of slightly more serious offense, bigger fines. We've talked about this a bit before, but do you think there's a a chance of the sting coming out of it when it's sort of repeat offences and people won't be as incandescent with the third, fourth, fifth one as they were with the first? You know, in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. I I, I think if all of this had happened much closer together, Johnson would have been a goner. I do think that. So he benefits. But I also think that the Tory party could have recovered and rebranded much more easily from that than this cumulative drip, drip effect. My sense from looking at the polls, and not just Johnson's popularity or the headline voting intention figure, but the underlying data about honesty, about trust, about economic competence, about professionalism, my sense is that this constant awfulness is scarring the Tory party's reputation in a much more profound and permanent way. Minnie, there's apparently trouble in Shadow Cabinet too. Lisa Nandy is calling on Starmer to stop focusing on Partygate and start hitting the government harder on the cost of living crisis. Do you agree with her? I think I actually do agree with her. Um, I'm not saying that Partygate isn't important. It's obviously important. It's an incredibly important moment in politics. But I don't think that that translates in the same way to the public. You know, I think there's a sense amongst the general public that they almost expect politicians to break the rules and not to face any accountability, especially after the last few years. And kind of just to follow on with from what Alex was saying there, you know, that this might be a little bit of the reason why Johnson has been able to get away with as much as he has without resigning, because it's about him as a person rather than the values of the party. You know, there's there's not widespread public shock at his behaviour. They don't like it, but they're not Mm. the public's not shocked Mm, by mm, it yeah um and I think you know Brexit has fallen off the radar now as a result of Covid too and I think people's priorities now really are about their bills and their personal circumstances and people who wouldn't have been worried before are now worried and I think that's where Labour can make inroads um, with the kind of added advantage to the Labour Party that the the cost of living crisis is a Tory-owned crisis. And I think that's really where the political opportunity is. So I I think she's probably right. And how strong do you feel Labour's hand is at the moment? I mean, Alex talked about the polls moving against the Conservatives. Um, Labour going into these local elections, in what kind of a position do you think? Yeah, so as Alex said, polls are kind of consistently putting Labour ahead in the local elections. In London, it's as much as a 27-point lead, I think, according to a a YouGov survey. Um, 
But again, following on from what Alex said there, you know, I think the concern here is that Labour's lead is not really based on clear messaging and clear policies from Starmer, but is actually more to do with the failures of the Tory party. So the key thing to focus on in this election is how many seats Labour wins across the Red Wall and across the South. And I saw some analysis that suggested that if the Tories lost around kind of 350 seats, then they would be really concerned about the next election. But for Labour to consider this a success for Starmer, they need to gain around 200 seats, which would kind of be akin to their best performing election in in a decade. Um, So that's really important, because if they don't manage to achieve those kind of numbers, or they fall below 100 seat gains, then the the ramifications for them are not good for the next general election and Mm. they'll have a lot more work to do. Um, Mm. So the places to kind of watch out for are Wakefield, where there's a by-election, Wandsworth and Westminster, which are currently held by the Tories, and Croydon, which I'm really interested in because it's held by Labour but has been kind of plagued with financial problems and there's really high voter dissatisfaction there. So I'm interested to see how Labour's messaging is hitting on the ground somewhere where they are already kind of in leadership but are having problems. Alex, um, the Tories removed a three-line whip on a vote to send Johnson to the Commons Privileges Committee. There was a lot of speculation around why and why when Johnson was in India, he wasn't actually back in Westminster Mm. trying to bribe his MPs to to not vote (laughs) against him. How much do you think the local elections and the current polling are playing into this, this, this rollover that they basically did? I think they they got a hint that they would lose, to be honest. And a lot of MPs suddenly had prior engagements that day. And I think with the Patterson affair, so fresh in everyone's mind, and I think that's key, actually, because, you know, the the Patterson thing where the whips marched them all up a hill made of poop (laughs) and you turned and left them there. And it's hardly surprising to me that, they couldn't muster support. And I think that's actually quite an important point because even though they're supporting him, they don't trust him. Yeah, yeah. Minnie, uh, we can't not talk about that Mail on Sunday article claiming that Angela Rayner has been using her legs (laughs) to distract (laughs) Boris Johnson at PMQs. I mean, I I don't think it takes a huge amount to distract him anyway. He's going to unleash the terrors of Earth on whoever said it. What do you make of that kind of response? (laughs) I mean, it's fine for him to say that but he's he's Boris Johnson you know he doesn't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to kind of appropriate behavior or <laughs> language yeah, um, author of the tottyometer yeah, exactly you know that the, the culture of sexism and misogyny and harassment has existed in parliament for years and it is disgusting and very little has changed after you know this kind of thing comes out fairly regularly um in terms of the way MPs speak to each other in terms of um the you know, all of the kind of stuff around Me Too. And I I just think, you know, until there's some clear leadership from a trustworthy prime minister, that's the way it's going to stay in there. Anthony, you've charted uh, the stages of scandal of various other prime ministers. Where would you put him uh, on the scale right now? Uh, Nine out of 10 in terms of trouble. He's being propped up by Vladimir Putin uh, by uh, Omicron and by 
the fact that there is not another uh, alternative. So Tory MPs are very smart about the polling. They can see what the polling is telling them about the country. But they also worry that with Rishi Sunak's star now down, there is no clear successor and they worry that um, they are going to be obliterated because they will fall out, not just over who the leader is in terms of personality politics, but also the uh, the breed of Toryism that they represent. There's no ideological consistency mm. in this uh, government at all. Johnsonism is defined by what it's against rather than what it stands for. And levelling up is, is, is just an ambition, but hasn't yet been fleshed out. Um, so, you know, there's all that going on. Helping them, I think, is Keir Starmer. If we consider in his Labour history, the two really devastating uh, Labour opposition leaders were Harold Wilson, probably the strongest of them all, from 63 to 64, utterly devastating, uh, against also a long-term Tory government, and Tony Blair from July 1994 onwards, also utterly devastating against a long-term discredited sleaze hit uh, Tory government. So, I mean, there are lots of similarities, but... Yeah, Kirstam has enormous strengths, but he is, isn't able to define a clear policy direction as those two, as Harold Wilson and Tony Blair did. And he's not able to have that ring of strength in his voice that carries conviction. And he's clearly not uh, inspiring and elevating and uplifting his shadow cabinet um, in the way that they did. Um, mm. And he hasn't got a devastating team around him with mm. Gordon Brown and Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson, Philip Gould and Angie Hunter in the way that uh, Blair did and Wilson had uh, the equivalent. So there's something not quite right in the House of uh, Labour at the moment, even with uh, a desperately flawed target to be aiming at. Now, before Christmas, uh, when the infamous Allegra Stratton video leaked, I think I'm right in saying that you said it wouldn't be terminal for Johnson. Um, obviously, it wasn't in the immediate aftermath. Do you think, though, that this drip drip, as we've referred to it earlier in the show, means that you might change your mind on that, that, that it will end up being terminal for him? Or do you think it'll be something more like the cost of living crisis that is his undoing? Yeah. So, I mean, let's remember... That, that two months ago he was in the exit lounge until Ukraine was invaded. And yet, and yet, until such time as there is somebody uh, around uh, whom the party can unite, it could be Sajid Javid, it could be anyone, it could be Jeremy Hunt, uh, but they lack that big star appeal. They're a bit like... Uh, Keir Starmer, they're all the constituent parts that somehow ought to work very well, but it doesn't carry conviction. And they don't have that animal uh, energy and charisma. I mean, there are people, of course, on the Labour front bench who do have that. Um, but you can't invent it if you don't have it. So, so it's difficult to see that how we can carry on for long with his MPs beginning to abandon him and with the polls keeping as they are and with a May election not going to be remotely good for him. And it's difficult to see how he's going to go until 
there is somebody around who they can coalesce. So I guess we just uh, hobble along uh, like a bird that's finding it hard to take <laughs> off. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, we will just watch and cross our legs. Sorry, that's an unfortunate metaphor. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, and see what happens. Well, before we recorded and just after Porngate had broken, uh, I did see Liz Truss walking outside um, near Westminster and she had the biggest grin on her face that I have ever seen. And I do see her quite often walking around here. So watch mm, this. That's interesting. Space. Now, in the last year, the UK has seen a sitting prime minister be the first to ever be convicted of law-breaking that we know of. Leaders have fallen on their swords for far less in the past, and this week, which marks 25 years since Tony Blair was first elected, we're talking to Anthony Selden about the making of a prime ministerial downfall. Anthony, is there always a moment like the Suez crisis or Theresa May's Brexit votes that sort of signals a point from which a prime minister can just never return? Well, there is, but it can sometimes take a long uh, time. So with John Major, it was the ERM crisis, Black Wednesday, when the Sun editor said to him he was going to uh, send around a bucket of indescribable to number 10 and pour it over his head. It, it, It was a huge humiliation for John Major and his premiership continued for five years, but it was on the back foot the whole time. Uh, And Blair never recovered his authority after Iraq. And he carried on for another four years after Iraq. And Gordon Brown really lost his authority early on, in fact, if uh, you remember when he had said that he was going to have an election because he wanted his own mandate in uh, the autumn of 2007. um, And he then ducked it and pulled back on it. Um, and that lost him the authority. When you suddenly you re- you realise that these are frail human beings after all, the mystique goes. You can carry on, but you will never will never be glad, confident, morning again. So, uh, and we've passed that point with Boris Johnson about ninety-seven times. Uh, they were, <laughs> uh, and, and yet he carries on. I mean. He does have extraordinary powers of uh, continuity and uh, robustness and reinvention. Um, and yet, uh, what? why was Liz Trust smiling? <laughs> well, this is it. I mean, top, toppling, toppling a prime minister does always seem to need dissenting voices from around the cabinet table to shift them. You at least need the stalking horse from you know, which the other heir apparents then go over the parapet. Could Johnson buck this trend because he just does have so many nodding dogs and and main uh, opponent Rishi Sunak now seems to be out of the running? Yeah, but uh, things change very, very quickly. Uh, Number 10 only ever has two modes. It's either uh, the PM's going to be fine or this is an absolute disaster. Uh, But even though we're in that second phase now that everything's bad it does not mean that they're going to have to go because however bad it is the great fear of the Tories and we saw the same uh when David Miliband uh pulled back from sticking the knife into Gordon Brown in 2009 um 
however bad and worried people might be about the incumbent prime minister, the fear is that the chaos that can surround a conflicted leadership election could be even worse. Uh, Tories love power. That's why they are the longest continuously serving uh, government. Uh, They're different to Labour. Labour throughout history has always been much more purist. It's believed in in, uh, values. Uh, The Tories believe in uh, power uh, and they will they will junk anything to keep on to power leaders policies organizations platforms yeah we've got principles and if you don't like them we'll find some other ones yeah but you know who is going to take over now Rishi Sunak he's he he went down in flames but he could rise up in flames he could certainly uh, come back he does have that animal spirit that you need to have as a uh, leader, Theresa May never had it. Uh, Tony Blair had it in spades. That was why he, he he carried on. That was the big difference. I mean, Gordon Brown was in many ways a far more accomplished, uh, rounded prime minister, but he lacked that. He also, of course, lacked the opportunity by the time he took over. Uh, most of the cream had been drunk. Now, when we talk about getting rid of a, a conservative leader, um, we always talk about the 1922 committee and the number of letters of no confidence that need to go in. Graham Brady, who's currently the chair of the 1922 committee, has allegedly received so many that they're just eight away from announcing that the threshold has been reached. What do you think about this method? Is it too opaque? Does it does it work for the Conservatives? I'm not certain that that figure, by the way, is right, because... I mean, I've interviewed Graham Brady before, and I believe him when he says that only he knows the number. And so I guess it will be a figure uh, that's put together by uh, what MPs have been saying in private. Mm. Uh, And what MPs say in private is very different to what they've actually done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But once it is reached, it again doesn't mean that he's going to go because there will be a vote. Uh, It won't just be arm twisting, it will be body twisting to uh, persuade sufficient people to stay faithful to him. But what about the actual method of it? I mean, is it... It it feels so bizarre that the whole fate of a country feels like it rests on one man's you know, power of of receiving these letters and telling us nothing about it. I mean, welcome to the British Constitution. (laughs) Um, Or lack of. Yeah, quite. But it is as it is at the moment. And what MPs are doing, uh, it's not up to 1963, it was just um, a group of Etonian cabinet ministers shuffling around and deciding who was right for the country. At least here the MPs will be thinking about what they can best sell to the country so that there is an indirect sense of a democratic uh, general Rousseauian will of the country. Mm. Uh, But they're thinking uh, very much about the unpopularity and what the polls are saying. But of course, you know, we are a representative democracy. We're not a direct democracy. Uh, We have an absurdly uh, and unnecessarily uh, 20th century system of democracy and indeed government and it is ripe for change. And with the new technology, we could have so much more efficient and responsive democracy uh, than than the system 
we have of of letters. I mean, he, for goodness sake, sends a letter. Right, sends a letter anymore. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a letter. But here there are the wax uh, seals. Uh, <laughs> sending letters into a mysterious box that only this gentleman uh, uh, counts. And and this is going to be our prime minister if if he goes uh, uh, replaced by uh, somebody else. Anthony, you you mentioned Blair uh, briefly. Do you think the the seed of Blair's downfall was there from the very start in the pact he made with Gordon Brown that he would eventually step aside? I absolutely do. And in that programme that uh, that the BBC did that was much lauded, which I thought was weak, it didn't examine lots of core propositions such as what might have happened had Gordon Brown taken over. Uh, Gordon Brown, who was, um, I mean, to be honest, much brighter, uh, a a much better policy thinker, understood economics and finance, understood the Labour Mm. Party and the Labour movement. And as Tony Blair now says, he did squander his first, or largely squandered his first term. The most important innovations for that first term were the constitutional innovations, Mm. including Scotland and Wales, which were pioneered not by him and in which he he wasn't interested, but it was Derry uh, Irvin, his former tutor, the Lord Chancellor, uh, he spent his political capital unwisely, and he did have uh, a fundamentally undemocratic vision. I mean, he was not unlike Macron. He almost felt he was an elected, directly elected uh, president. Yeah. And uh, I think we now see a much more thoughtful, considered uh, Tony Blair than we did uh, when he was there. And I think that spelt mm. uh, the Iraq war, where he was listening uh, fundamentally to his own conscience uh, and not uh, to his uh, cabinet party or country about what was actually right and wise. And I think also um, that there's um, you can only judge prime ministers uh, against what their opportunity was. Um, and his opportunity in 1997 was Fast. He had a united Labour movement, a united country, a fawning press and, and media, a strong uh, a economy, uh, a real mood in the country that the time was ripe for a change. And he did not make changes to Britain commensurate with the opportunity that he had. Uh, and many prime ministers have achieved more on a far less uh, propitious playing field. Than Tony Blair. Now, like many uh, uh, illustrious prime minister watchers, I'll call you that we've had on the on the podcast, you tend to you all tend to skip Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> why, why is that? What's what's going on? It, it's it's almost like we have a sort of history of prime ministers briefly interrupted by a, a sort of senior estate agent that. <laughs> happened to wander into Downing Street that no one is particularly interested in. Cameron, of all the books I've written on prime ministers, was the hardest to see because uh, so much of his premiership pivots around the decision to call a referendum and the effect that that's had on Britain. And it will take a long time to see that impact through. Uh, But... He was the second youngest prime minister in the modern era. He was, again, like Blair, far too young and inexperienced. It is a matter of grave concern that the last five prime ministers between them have only been in three departments. 
sets. Um, uh, uh, and whereas the five before that had been in 23 before they become mm, prime minister. Interesting. Too young, too naive. They don't understand it. They think they can do it uh, on the back of an envelope rather than uh, reflecting and thinking deeply about what this most um, powerful uh, office can actually do and achieve. And they then spend the rest of their lives ruining their decisions and uh, writing memoirs that no one reads uh, uh, and reflecting on how they squandered the opportunity. So uh, I, I think so much of Cameron, I mean, he managed to keep Scotland uh, in the union just uh, for better or worse. Uh, his austerity policies are uh, have become very, uh, were at the time very unpopular. There were some liberal uh, reforms. There were some sensible, pragmatic uh, adjustments. Uh, he didn't have much opportunity in terms of a first coalition government to achieve a strongly conservative uh, agenda. The moment he got that agenda in 2015, much to his surprise, could maybe have then uh, achieved much more, but of course was brought down quickly by a referendum, which he did not have to fight in the way that he did. And that's mm. my uh, own judgment. He, he, he didn't listen. I brought in uh, someone called Vernon Bolton onto number 10 to talk to people about Harold Wilson's 1975 referendum uh, and what could be learned. Uh, and none of his team uh, came to uh, the talk. Um, uh, and you, you need to, I think, be a, a successful leader. You need to be able to listen. You need a degree of humility and, and a reverence for history uh, rather than a contempt for history and for your predecessors. The outcome is entirely uh, obvious. Arrogance will only lead uh, to downfall. Anthony, my knowledge of British prime ministers doesn't stretch back as far as yours. I mean, are there examples in history of prime ministers who've refused to resign in the same way that Boris Johnson has? I mean, how many times has he hung on where other leaders would have maybe walked away? They are all, <laughs> almost all very... Uh, uh, thick-skinned. Um, he is, even by that standard, remarkably thick-skinned. But his predecessor, the 54th Prime Minister, Theresa May, uh, faced uh, the biggest and the third biggest ever defeat in the House of Commons in British history. So she had to be pretty brazen to keep going. Um, I think he's unusual. I'd put him up right at the top of, of being brazen, of being a rule breaker and, and not worrying about it. All his life, he has played the game. Uh, you say that slightly nervously, that expression, uh, in his own way uh, and by his own rules. And he's always got through in the past. And I, it, when he sits alone in his study, um, I, I think he'll be thinking that this formula has always worked in the past. Um, he absolutely doesn't want to go down in flames as the man who was brought down by Partygate. He is um, a historian, he might be a rum kind of historian, but he is, he sees things through the lens of the classical world and through historical figures who he idolises like uh, Churchill. He wants to go down as the great uh, hero of who made Brexit happen, who made a success of Brexit, who 
and who was the dominant world leader, as he would see it, in standing up for Western values against uh, Vladimir Putin. That's what he wants to go down in history as, and he knows that if he succumbs now, that won't be the story at all. Thanks, Anthony, and we'll see you at the end of the show. Next this week, despite a reported poison pill move to prevent a hostile takeover, the world's richest and most divorced man, Elon Musk, (laughs) has bought Twitter for a reported $44 billion. It means he now owns the platform where he was sued for defamation in 2019. He said that free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated like whether jam or cream goes first on the scone, or scone, of course. (laughs) Alex, Musk wants to make Twitter's algorithm public. Is this a good idea? What does it actually mean? Give us us the gen. Do you know, I have no idea, and, and I don't have very strong opinions about it. Elon Musk is one of those people that just doesn't evoke the strongest reaction in me like he seems to do in other people. So I'm a lot more sanguine about this. But I think, look, that may not last. It might be that he takes over and the whole thing falls apart. But what I see a lot on Twitter at the moment is I see a lot of people who project worst-case scenarios and pretend that everything is rosy on Twitter now. But it's not. So they're comparing something that hasn't happened to something that never was. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but do you know what I mean? I mean, Elon Musk says a lot, but ultimately, the same people who were in charge operationally of Twitter before are still in charge operationally of Twitter. He has said some things about the sort of broad principles that he wants coming in, but generally speaking, if you look at his other companies. He tends to intervene at at this philosophical level on the top, but he doesn't, he's not the sort of person that takes operational charge of the minutiae of it. I mean, while we're on the subject of of philosophy, uh, philosopher Nadine Dorries um, (laughs) (laughs) is obviously obviously overseeing the online harms bill at the moment uh, and wants online anonymity gone. Uh, Musk has said he wants to, quote, authenticate all humans. Uh, What's the interplay here between uh, the two philosophers of Musk and Doris? Why? Why are you asking me that question? (laughs) (laughs) No, look, I think I actually there is an important point to be made here. The two are distinct. Okay, the platform having proof that you are a real adult person doesn't mean they will hand over that information to any state agency without proper proper process. What Doris is talking about is about a, a sort of erasing anonymity online. Elon Musk is not saying that I have to log on and tweet as uh, my real self, although I do as it happens, but but I. I could authenticate myself as a real person and log on and tweet as secret barrister, for instance. Mm. So I don't, I don't think those two things are the same. And I think his idea of authenticating the accounts, to be honest, I think it's a bloody good thing. Because in my view, the problem with Twitter is not that some, you know, prick 043 
comes up to me and calls me a faggot. It is that they do that, and then I report them, and either Twitter comes back to me and says, calling people faggots is good for us, <clears throat> which annoys me even more, or they ban the account, and up pops prick 0432652 to call me a faggot. <laughs> That's the problem with Twitter at the moment. Yeah. If Musk finds a way to tackle that unlimited troll account issue, let them say whatever they want. All I need to do is block them once. Yeah. Now, I've seen hordes of people, lots of them friends, say, that's it, line crossed, I'm, I'm going to leave Twitter. Minnie, do you think people are going to leave in their droves? No, I mean, I think a lot of those people are chang shit, to be quite honest. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to leave, are they? I mean, I'm not going to, and I don't think that makes me a particularly bad person. Like, it's really hard to take down an entire app by boycott, especially when there isn't uh, anything kind of remotely competitive available. Um, you know, maybe some more kind of tech-inclined listeners will be able to give us an alternative. But I think what usually happens in this circumstance is that if another app becomes available and significant negative changes are made to, made to Twitter, like um, it's no longer free or the interface becomes unusable or there's some dodgy stuff going on with people's data, then people might switch. And, and those sure. things aren't out of the question for Elon Musk, I guess. He could very well you know, change the app significantly, but that would actually be really risky for him because he's just made a $45 billion investment in it. Um, and Twitter hasn't had the same growth rates as other apps. Um, so they need to kind of hold on to the, their audience. But I guess only time will tell. And also, it's not like, you know, Trump supporting Hicks are buying his electric cars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? His other yeah, companies are yeah. fairly well plugged into the liberal elite. And Plus, what are they going to do to us? I'm sorry. What I mean, <laughs> if you leave, if you decide to leave Twitter and I stay on Twitter, where are you going to flame me? Exactly. Yeah. What are you going to do? Send me a singing telegram. <laughs> is 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 Trump going to come back to Twitter? Do you think will he be allowed back in? I think that is probably something that will happen quite early on in Musk's ownership of it. Um, I mean, he doesn't really seem to know what he wants to achieve beyond this like kind of vacuous freedom of speech thing. Yeah. And I think that the the first thing that probably will happen is that those kind of um, obnoxious, far-right, horrible accounts do get reinstated. But I don't think a lot of the other changes that people think will happen mm. will happen quite as immediately or that they will be quite as um, detrimental. Because like Alex says, you know, he doesn't quite grasp the complexities of things like content moderation or the rationale for regulations around child protection and exploitation. And he will get pushback from the people who are experts in those areas yeah. and who already <laughs> work for Twitter. So I but think... Mini, if, if you had $44 billion and you'd bought Twitter, what would you... What changes would you like to do? Um, I read a very nerdy Twitter thread um, earlier on today talking about how Musk could actually get rid of bots. And I actually think that's probably a really important thing to do because, you know, a, a lot of these troll accounts aren't even real. And I think if you really wanted to kind of make Twitter a more pleasant place and a place that actually is about freedom of speech, uh, then 
bots would be the first place that you go, but I don't know how you actually do that. I'm not a tech nerd. <laughs> Alex, what about you? Um, I think I would uh, allow myself to edit my tweets because just I stay awake at night because of typos. <laughs> like you can almost guarantee that that my most viral tweet will have the worst typo in it, <laughs> and it, it just it just sets off my OCD. <laughs> yeah. I hate it so much. What about you, Naomi? What would you change? Oh, yeah, edit button for sure. I mean, it's when you've done a thread and so you can't just delete one. No, it's the middle tweet in a thread with a fucking typo in it. <laughs> Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Minnie, what have we missed? Yeah, so it's quite a horrible story, to be honest, but I wanted to draw some attention to um, a really tragic and horrible uh, miscarriage of justice and use of the death penalty in Singapore. Um, so earlier this week, uh, Nagantran Dharmalingam was uh, executed. Um, he was someone who was considered to be um, mentally unwell and had severe learning difficulties, and he was his case was that he was coerced into carrying a very small amount of drugs and was given the death penalty as a result of that. His sentence was in violation of international law. But actually, Richard Branson made a really interesting intervention where he said that uh, business leaders who are looking to invest and trade in Singapore should think first about operating in countries which have transparent legal processes and are committed to the rule of law. Now, I think that is a really important thing for us to be focusing on now, particularly in the context of things like Ukraine and globalisation and what other relationships with countries look like outside of government relationships and I just mm. thought that was something for us to focus on and if you want to read more about that case then you should follow the charity Reprieve who are working on it and fighting against the death penalty. Alex what about you? So Rishi Sunak has resurfaced. Um, <laughs> he has launched a squad to recover the billions that he a few months ago wrote off from Covid fraud um, I mean, this is just utterly laughable. You know, fraud is like kidnapping. It's like the first 48 hours count. <laughs> I mean, these companies will have folded, reformed, claimed more money they did, and they folded did, they again. They did find somebody at, at Border Control, a builder with loads of cash in a suitcase. With right? loads of, yeah, with a suitcase full of cash. I just find it still astounding that that didn't happen in parallel with the schemes. The minister responsible resigned three months ago because the government decided this wasn't a priority and he was pressing for precisely this squad. So... You know, two years later, because Sunak is in trouble politically, up he pops and he puts together some sort of squad to recover this money that will never be recovered. And and it's just more of a waste of money, basically. The only story that I want to draw attention to, um, that, I mean, look, listeners have heard me talk about the policing bill many, many times, but it has now passed through Parliament and will receive royal assent, and it wasn't successfully amended uh, in the way that many of us wanted, uh, meaning that we now live in a country where noisy protest has been banned, uh, where large gatherings outside Parliament uh, are no longer legal, effectively. Um, and I think it's an incredibly 
dark uh, time for our democracy. And that's before we get on to any of the other awful bills that are also going to mm. get uh, their way through uh, this parliament before prorogation. But but the policing bill in particular uh, probably didn't get quite as much coverage as uh, Nationality and Borders Bill and Elections Bill have done this week. So um, uh, I'm sure we will all see each other again on an illegal protest mm. in the not too distant future. Is, is there a way to organise like an eerily quiet one? Where we all just gather is, in a place it, and look will, at the prime minister. We could, we could, but uh, <laughs> if there were too many of us, then we would be in breach of the the size limitation rules. So, yeah, yeah, I'm afraid this government is ducking accountability at every turn. And on that delightful note, that's the show. My thanks to Alexandre. Thank you, Minnie Raman. Thank you. An enormous thanks to our guest, Anthony Selden. Anthony, what's your next book? It is uh, Johnson at 10. Actually, it's on um, the walk I did back from Switzerland to the English Channel, creating a path for peace across the line of, of the Western Front. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Stay tuned for our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Many thanks from me to Alan Roberts, Mike Zumstro, JJ Spriege, Gregor Shepard, Rachel Johnson, nah, can't be that one, Penny Oliver, Robert McKay, Sandra Vicker, Keith Anderson, and Boris Johnson, Isabel End. Big shout from me to Denise Claxton, Norman Mackerskill, Mark Bateman, Harry Lepinen, Adam Greenwood, Marianne Ford, David Burgess, Catherine Granham, Michael Sykes and Grant Cartledge. And a huge thank you from me to Al Campbell. Is it you, Alistair? <laughs> Louise Cody, Stuart Griffith, James Runham, Martin Crawley, Imogen Radford, Neil Archibald, John Walsh, Steve Bailey and Matthew Highland. See you next time. Oh God, What Now was presented by Naomi Smith with Alexandreou and Minnie Rahman. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. The producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovich. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer, Jacob Jarvis. And Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, we're pondering the eternal question, why is Donald Trump so damp? (laughs) Yes, Talk TV has launched in the UK with a headline interview between Piers Morgan and the former POTUS, where he sweated under the studio lights and teased a second presidential run in 2024. So what does the panel make of this new rival to GBB? Is that teased? Did he well, tease I mean, a, a 2024 <laughs> run or did he threaten Showed a bit of light. Showed a bit of <laughs> Mini, GB News sets the bar very low indeed. And all talk that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly mini-cast, oh god, what else, every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.